brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shinise Omara. And I'm Emma Keatling. This week on the podcast, I look at how mushrooms could be heating our homes. So what we do is we harness those, those fibers and we grow different shapes out of them. We grow these panels and then we found out they have amazing properties. You will never look at mushrooms the same way again after the shinny. I am taking you on a glorious journey of decomposition and I bet you've never had an offer like that. Now, fungus is really seen as something that you want to have in your home, but it might be able to keep us all warm and toasty in winter. Fungus is something that's in the forest, isn't it? How is it going to work in homes? Well, well, I was just as surprised as you were, Shinny, really. I mean, I visited the biomanufacturing firm Biome, and they are using fungus, mycelium to be exact, to create insulation panels for homes. So these are the things that go in the walls to make sure that the heat doesn't escape. Mycelium sounds like a really incredible ingredient. I've heard it being used in lots of different applications, but never something like this. How does it work? So maybe, first of all, we should explain what mycelium is, because I wasn't totally sure, to be honest. So mycelium consists of these branching thread-like filaments. And so you've got the mushroom on the top of the surface and the mycelia are underneath. And it takes in these small molecules of food, so typically sugar, but often from such sources as wood or plants in the forest floor. And it excretes enzymes that break down these materials into digestible morsels. But let's hear from Francesco van der Rossa. He's the lead biodesign engineer at Biome. And he started by handing me an insulation panel made of mycelium. So this, this is a big old piece of fungus, basically. Exactly, yeah. It sort of feels a little bit plasticky and yet certainly doesn't feel like a mushroom, although maybe a sort of a woody, plasticky mushroom, if that makes any sense. And it's got a little bit of weight to it. Does it have a little... It's hard to smell when I've got my mask on. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit, but nothing. Yeah. And you just pop that in a wall. Exactly, yeah. That goes between a wall and it keeps your house nice and warm. Fabulous. It's a... So how do you start this whole process? I mean, maybe we should explain, what is mycelium? We know what a mushroom is, but what's mycelium? Well, the mushroom, what you see is like the apple on the tree, is the fruit of the organism. But the great majority of it lives underground, underneath the soil, in between the roots. And uh, that network of really, really tiny fibers is what mycelium is. So what we do is we harness those those fibers and we grow different shapes out of them. We grow these panels and then we found out they have amazing properties that we can implement in all sorts of applications. So it's, I mean, does mycelium grow it's under the ground or does it, because you know, it's everywhere, isn't it? It is everywhere in, in a teaspoon of soil you have miles and miles of these mycelial strands uh, and it's it really does grow everywhere so it, when you see wood that is rotting decaying on the floor there is definitely some mycelium growing in there it's underneath the soil it connects the roots of trees and it allows them to, to talk to each other in wow. a way it's really a major player in uh, in the ecosystem out there in the forest as the mycelium grows 
you know, you keep feeding it and the threads fill the gaps between the feed and the mass just gets bigger and the feed becomes part of this panel. Again, Francesco goes into more detail for us. Have a listen. So you can sort of, what, create all sorts of different shapes with it? Absolutely, yeah. So after going through a few consecutive steps, we get to the stage where we are ready to form every type of shape. And then with a little bit of a tender love and care, the mushroom solidifies and we can create sculptures or panels or installations and meet any sorts of demands that our, our, our client comes uh, come to us with. So it's more like a... So here, Francisco is showing me a hemp-based feed that kind of looks like plasticky shavings. But there are lots of different feedstocks, although they wouldn't really go into detail on that one. Uh, this is a hemp shiv. It's a natural residue. Mm -hmm. And it's a great little feeding... Uh, it's a great little feedstock for our mushrooms. Mm -hmm. But we can really feed it all sorts of stuff. And depending on what we feed the mushroom, we can get you know, different properties out of it. So if we use more fibrous stuff, uh, we can get more uh, more strength out of our fungi. And uh, yeah, fungi are really amazing. They can eat practically anything. You know, you can train them by consecutively and repeatedly having them eat uh, the same substrate. They get used to it. And with enough training, you can even train them to eat things you wouldn't normally think of, like oil-based substances like plastic. Now, I should stress that the exact process is protected by intellectual property rights, so we can't give too much away. But just take my word for it, it is really impressive. You know, once again, nature has spent millions of years perfecting a process and humans are harnessing that power. I find it, like the whole thing is just so incredible. Can I just get something straight in my head? Like, is the mycelium the fungus or is the fungus is the mushroom, isn't it? No, it's, it's all fungus. So all parts of it are fungus. Um, but the, so the mushroom is the fruiting body, which is on the, on the top of the surface. And then down the, the little tendrils sort of underneath, you can almost call it like a root system, really, underneath the mushroom. That's the bit that's sort of breaking down and feeding off all the, you know, plant matter, all the leaves or the wood or whatever. And, um, and so what they're doing is taking these, these little threads and they pop it into this, this feed, you know, grains or whatever, and it sort of feeds on that feed, but it also grows at the same time, and then it grows in between the feed, and so it just fills it out like a big fat mass. It's you know quite light. Um, it's got a nice sort of scent to it. It doesn't smell like anything in particular. Maybe slightly you know that woody, foresty smell. Um, but yeah, it is like a very sort of dense foam. But you know it it can change. The properties of it can change. You know, as Francisco said, the properties of it can change depending on what feed you give it, which is you know quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I must confess, I did a story on mycelium, but it was to take the bitterness out of chocolate. <laughs> and so it's so incredible that you've done this story that is so radically different. Well, as you say, you know, mycelium has been around for, well, billions of years. Um, and, and they've found out all these things that it, it can do. But it was the for this particular product, the founder and CEO, Ehab Saeed, sort of in a roundabout way, um, he came up with this idea and pollution was the driving force. Um, right before I came to the UK for university, I went travelling for a couple of years and I travelled to some of the poorest places in the world. Um, I grew up in Qatar in the Middle East and there was quite a contrast between where I grew up and, and where I travelled to. And um, I was just really shocked to see, uh, you know, the amount of waste that is present all over the world. Um, the waste that's also, you know, coming from other places and are not actually generated in, in the countries that they end up in. Um, and that really motivated me to, you know, 
look into this and, and try and make a change and make a difference. So when I started my uh, master's degree at Brunel University, I led a research project investigating the waste streams in the UK, where they're being generated, where they're coming from and why they, they're there, why they're actually being created. And what I found is that the construction industry were generating incredible amounts of waste. And um, the figures that came out of the construction industry were just so shocking that it made me really want to focus on that and, and, and look into how we can make a difference. Um, very quickly, I realized that there wasn't a financial barrier, there wasn't necessarily a technological barrier to making a change or building in a different way. Um, but there was a, a quite a big perceptual barrier. And what I mean by that is um, the industry has been working in a very similar way for decades and decades. And um, there isn't enough questioning, you know, why we're building the way we are. There isn't enough um, sort of detail around the materials that we're developing, what their end of life is. And, and all of that seemed to be a little bit missing. Ehab sounds like a really incredible guy in terms of coming up with this idea that seems so sort of out of the box. Yeah, well, he's an entrepreneur, but he's also an engineer and a designer. And he's designed a way of, of building structures, which takes inspiration from nature. But when he looked into what he could build it from, there was nothing really out there. And so he actually got the scientists on board and said, okay, wh what do you think? What could we do? How could we make these, these sort of panels that I need? And they said, well, what about mycelium? So it sort of went from there and became this, you know, hey, let's make insulation panels with this. So that's really going to be their first um, uh, thing on the market, you know, they've got to get some income coming in and then they can work on other things because they're also making this sheet material called ORB or Organic Refuge Bio Compound and that's made from food waste. I mean, one had orange peel in it and it smelled absolutely delicious, but it's sort of a, I don't know, five mil thick um, a, a panel. It seems like a, almost like a wooden panel. They want this to be a circular economy. So, you know, get old panels and you could um, give them as feed to the mycelium growing into new panels. And they want it so that a part of the contract will be that these panels, um, you know, you, you sign a contract with a biome and then once your, your house is being demolished or whatever, you give those or you sell those, those panels back to the company. And so it just goes around and around. So they want to be carbon negative here. But because it is such a natural product, it's basically, you know, mycelium and the feed inside it. There's no synthetic things in there. That yeah, it's, it's a wonderful thing for the environment. And it could actually reverse some maybe not so good things for the environment, like this fungus could actually eat plastic, right? Yeah, now this was very mind-blowing. Um, so mycelium has always had the ability to break down all sorts of things, as we talked about before. But you wouldn't expect it to be able to break down something like oil or plastic, but it can adapt. It can adapt to what it can feed on. So in the experiments that Biome are doing, they're taking away the fungi's natural food source and they're giving it plastic. So then it has to go, well, there's nothing else to eat. I've got to, I've got to eat this. So then it figures out how to break that plastic down and they're trying several different strains to see which is the best performer. So tell me a bit more about the wall panels. Like how often do you have to replace them? Um, you know, do they behave with the same sort of performance as conventional insulation? So they're hoping that soon the panel will be the world's first accredited mycelium insulation product. And obviously with COVID, things are a bit delayed. They were hoping for that to happen roundabout now. But according to Biome stats, 
It outperforms petrochemical, sort of plastic-based construction materials in thermal and acoustic insulation. But because it's natural, it's safer and it's healthier. You know, mycelium, as I said before, mycelium does not contain the synthetic resin-based compounds that cause harmful toxic smoke and the quick spread of flames during a fire. Uh, also, in terms of the price, I mean, one of the things that Ehab was, you know, really focused on, he doesn't want sustainable products to be this thing that's, you know, unachievable for all of us and that we can't afford it because it's so, you know, bespoke. So what he wants to do is that once he can get the scale up, um, that it's going to be available at, a, you know, a much cheaper price. At the moment, it's about mid-range in price, which is not not bad, really, considering they're only just starting out. As they make more panels, they're hoping it could be, you know, maybe in the sort of the low low to middle area. And so, you know, it won't break the bank if you want to fill your house up with it. Now, this is an absolutely fantastic science story, but there's another aspect to it, isn't there? So there's a small town of Watchet on the English East Coast, and 20% of the town's workforce lost their jobs when the paper mill shut down, and that was Christmas Eve 2015. Now, a small part of the mill still stands, and that's where Biome is going to set up shop. They're going to have a factory there, and it was the idea of the Onion Collective, which is a group of professional women from the area who were looking for a new industry, and they chose Biome. They basically rang them up and said, hey, you know, we'd like you to come to our town and set up shop. And amazingly, they're going to build this factory and there's going to be a 50-50 profit share, which is very, very unusual for this sort of thing. But Biome really want to sort of, you know, work with communities and really sort of grow this whole circular economy, negative carbon aspect and spread it as far around the world as they can. What do onions have to do with fungus? Uh, So onions and mushrooms go together. So, I mean, look, but no, the Onion Collective, the reason they call themselves the Onion Collective is there's lots of layers to onions and there's lots of layers to these women. So they've all come from different backgrounds and they've all got these multiple ideas. And what they're trying to do is sort of, you know, really energise their community and and, and sort of get the workforce going again. And, you know, they did a big feasibility study and they looked at it and they went, okay, this is the future, these sort of biotech companies. And then they went looking for a biotech company and they said that Biome stood out and they felt that, you know, that could sort of move into the um, the old paper mill or part of the paper mill but still standing and that it would fit very well, um, you know, with the, within the town and the setup of the town. Shinny, what is exciting you in science this week? Well, do you know what, Emma? I'm going to actually go for a slightly different tact um, this week on the podcast because, you know, usually I do tend to find stories that are sort of quite engineering-y and quite techy. But this week, I am looking at some research that's been done that says that a positive outlook in life can actually lead to healthier ageing. I believe that. I haven't seen it yet, but I believe it. Yeah, well, (laughs) researchers at Northwestern University have conducted a study where they basically analysed data from 991 middle-aged and older US adults who participated in a national study at three time periods in their life between 1995 and 1996, 2004 and 2006, and then... 2013 to 2014. What they found was that memory certainly declined with age, which I think we all have experience with. 
but also individuals with higher levels of positive affect had a less steep memory decline over the course of almost a decade. And I just think it's a really lovely story because I think stories like this and research like this tends to come and go. But I think given the year we've had in 2020 with the global pandemic and all of the often doom and gloom about the economy and the future as a result of COVID-19, I think it's also really important to remember to stay positive because it really will affect (laughs) the way we age. So I need to stop running around the room going that we're doomed. No, you need to exactly not do that. So let me describe to you what they mean by positive (laughs) affect. And this study was published in the Journal of Psychological Science, um, where they found that people who feel enthusiastic and cheerful, what psychologists call positive affect, are less likely to experience memory decline as they age. So this research actually adds to the growing body of research on positive affect's role in healthy ageing. And I've been doing a story recently about the ageing process, and we tend to look at it from a very biological point of view. We're very interested in, you know, the genome and bioinformatics, essentially. But there's less research on the psychological side and how that affects biology. And so I found this story really interesting because I think it's starting to make that connection between how we are sort of emotionally and mentally and how that can affect our biology and physiology. So don't run around saying we're doomed, we're doomed. Smile more and then you won't see as many wrinkles uh, in the mirror in the morning. Is that pretty much it? Well, it's more about memory. It's more about memory loss. So if you can stay more positive and have a more positive outlook on life, it actually increases your memory capacity later on in life. And, um, you know, whilst it could sound a bit woo-woo or, you know, a bit out there, I mean, you, we, there are some like PhD graduates from Northwestern University working on this. I'm all for it. I think sometimes though, you know, say telling somebody to just have a positive outlook, it's quite, it's quite a hard thing to do. So might I suggest meditation? Shinny, you know how calm I seem these days? It's because a little meditation in the morning just clears the mind. I'm not, you know, worrying about all sorts of things. Same sort of thing, just just giving the mind a little bit of time, a little bit of space. And it's amazing how much clearer your your thoughts are and and maybe your memory as well. I don't know. I'll get back to you. So what have you got for us this week, Emma? Is there a silver lining to the ice melting due to climate change? No, not really. I can answer that question for you. No, there is not. But maybe if you're an archaeologist, there are some exciting discoveries to be made. So a large number of arrows dating from the Stone Age to the medieval period have melted out of a single ice patch in southern Norway in recent years. And the researchers from the University of Cambridge, Oslo and Bergen, they've gathered up to a total of 68 arrow shafts and many, many other artefacts. And the oldest arrows date from around 4100 BC, which is pretty impressive. And while the youngest are from roughly A.D. 1300, based on the radiocarbon analysis, um, these arrowheads of of various materials have also survived, including bone and slate and iron and quartzite and, um, and one made of muscle shell. 
Now, there's lots of reindeer specimens too, and the fact that they still graze the area means it's probably been a key hunting ground for millennia. And now it's been called a, a treasure trove, and it's extremely rare and extremely important. So it's nice to hear something positive coming out of the ice melting. And I'm very happy for the scientists, but I am still worried about all the ancient diseases being released. So uh, just a little climate recap there for you, Shani. Um, so ice melting is bad, but sometimes we get cool stuff out of it. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGTN Europe and type in Razor. And also, we have a new YouTube channel, and it's called the Razor Science Show. We'd love you to pop on there and subscribe and take a look at what we've got. Until next time, bye.